Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today, and we're so grateful that you're a part of our community. This weekend marked the first Sunday of Lent. We had the opportunity on Ash Wednesday to join our new neighbors, but this is our first time gathering together as a community during this Lent season. And this weekend and every weekend in Lent, we will be participating in a practice called Eucharist or for some communion. While this is a practice that happens during our gatherings in person, it's also a practice that we want to extend an invitation to you from wherever you're listening. So if you want to participate in that practice with us today, make sure to have some form of cracker or bread and some form of juice or wine with you. And when we get there, I'll lead us through that time. A couple things to keep in front of you before we get to today's teaching. The first is just a reminder of what's happening over the next eight or so weeks. Last week, we had the opportunity to share with you that we are moving into the Tribune in March. And with that comes some dates to keep in front of you. The first is, is that in two weeks, so March 3rd, it will be our last Sunday meeting together in person at Studebaker 112. Now, for some of you, this might elicit some confusing emotions, uh, some contradictions, because while we're excited to move to the Tribune, Studebaker really has been such a beautiful home for us. And so we'll take some time in our gatherings in person on March 3rd to share what Studebaker has meant to us or the things that have happened in that building in our lives and in the lives of our community. If you've visited us in Studebaker, we would love to hear from you and hear how your experience at Studebaker was and your first time coming into South Bend City Church. And so if you want to share that, you can go ahead and email me, Mariah, M-A-R-I-A-H, at southbendcitychurch.com. It would be super helpful for us to know, for our local and our long-distance community members who have been able to join us, the ways in which you're grateful for the space that we've occupied for these last several years. Then on March 10th, we'll take a break from our normal gatherings, but we'll still gather together in the form of a workday. From 9 a.m. to noon, we'll meet at Studebaker and at some point probably shift over to the Tribune as we get our hands on the building and move. And then on March 17th, at our normal gathering times, we will have our first gatherings at the Tribune. We're so excited about that, but we are also excited because that actually launches us into Palm Sunday and Holy Week. So Palm Sunday, we'll once again have our normal gathering times. And then on Good Friday, we'll meet together for a short liturgy at noon at the Tribune. And for those that listen exclusively to the podcast, it'll be available on the podcast as well. And then finally, we will meet together for Easter. Now we're expecting a bit bigger of a turnout just with our new location, and Easter tends to have more people join us anyway. And so we've actually added a third gathering and shifted our times. So there will be three opportunities on Easter to join us, one at 8.30 a.m., one at 10 a.m., and one at 11.30 a.m. So whichever one of those works for you in person, we would love to see you at the Tribune on Easter Sunday. All of these things, moving, gatherings, and everything in between is only doable because of your generosity. It's through the generosity of those that call South Bend City Church home that allow us to do what we do. So if you want to give financially in that way, you can do so by going to the link in the show notes below. And you can give to our general fund, which is our day-to-day operations. You can continue to or make a new pledge to the Tribune Project as we get ready to move there. Or you can give to any of the other funds that are there. Once again, thank you for the ways in which you show up generously. All right. So after a long hiatus, we are back to Romans. Remember that? (laughs) In the first few chapters of the letter, Paul takes on an accusatory tone that leaves many of us feeling quite uncomfortable. But what happens if you have enough context to understand what he's doing with this strange argument? 
you might find a very relevant word for all of us in this current cultural moment. Now, before we jump in with the rest of our community, just want to call out that there was a funny moment at our 9 a.m. gathering, which you'll actually hear here. For those of you that don't know, there are train tracks that run right past our building, and a lot of times you'll hear kind of the rumble on the podcast. But every once in a while in person, there will be some really loud banging as it's passing by. And this Sunday, that bang came at quite a dramatic moment. So just wanted to give some context so that you can laugh with us when we get there. All right. I've got nothing else. Let's jump in with the rest of our community now. Uh, did you guys know that we're in a series in the book of Romans? <laughs> it's a joke because if you haven't been here, you may not know that we started this series on a letter from the New Testament uh, seven years ago, approximately. Uh, it feels that way, really, doesn't it? In the fall. And we joked that it's going to stretch for quite a while because it's a fairly substantial letter. And we haven't been in it for a few weeks because we've had other matters at hand, but we're coming back to it today. Let me remind you of where we've been and what we said about this letter already. Uh, I'm fascinated by this letter. And by the way, I don't, if, if you have like no, absolutely no uh, regard for the Bible, if you don't put any stock in these texts from a like spiritual authority stance, that's okay. I get that. I think I can make a case that it's worth studying because I don't know that you can find 10 texts in the history of the world that have had more impact on civilization than this letter that was written by a guy named Paul a few decades after the life of Jesus. Now, whether you think that impact is good or bad or how you regard it is another question, but I think we ought to be curious about it because this letter has shaped movements and minds and thoughts and generations and uh, huge swaths of history have been impacted by the words written in these 16 chapters of a letter that we call Romans that was written by Paul, like I said, to Christians that he had never met in a city called Rome a few decades after Jesus. And for that reason alone, I think it's interesting to study, let alone the fact that uh, for those of us who put a lot of stock in this text, we find this sort of beating heart of the New Testament there in this letter that he's written. It's also really complicated. If you've ever read these 16 chapters in Romans, it's kind of a gnarly text in fact, like when we decided to jump into this, I was talking to some pastor friends, and I was kind of like naively excited about it. And friends who are wiser than me were like, really? They're like, you really want to commit to that? And I was like, it'll be great. It's important. And they're like, yeah, it's also complicated. I'm like, Southland City Church can handle it. <laughs> Amen? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the letter begins with this beautiful word to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And we said way back when, like in September, maybe you could just sort of substitute for ourselves just to help us understand a little more to hear the import of this. To all in South Bend who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Now that's complicated because he didn't actually write it to you. You know that, right? He actually wrote it to those people in Rome. And so we have tons of contextual work to do. But yeah, to hear the heart of it, you might just like let that sit on you for a moment. To you who are loved by God. Like that's your name in this letter. Beloved of God, called to be his holy people. And then he has a lot of things to say. Now, we observed back in September that if you just read like from beginning to end, pretty quickly you go from this like elevated language that God loves you and you're called to be his holy people to like some really, really intense accusatory stuff. Like Paul seems to be having a bad day. Like three sentences after, he seems to be having a great day. And I just sidestepped it all. I just said, we're going to like leave all of that behind. The first four chapters of Romans, very, very complicated. We're going to skip ahead to Romans 5 through 8. And so we spent the fall hearing this profound message in Romans 5 through 8. He says things like, death isn't just something that happens to us. It happens through us. 
that death seems to have this force to it, this power to it, this energy. It just keeps working its way in the world and in our lives and through our lives, and we are up against it. And yet, he also says that even as much as we are up against the power of death and sin, we have within us and working for us the spirit of life. Like that same spirit that had enough power to raise Jesus from the dead is at work in our lives over and against that power of death that we are facing. He says in Romans 8 that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, not past nor present nor future, not powers below or powers above. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. That, all of that seems to be the, the beating heart at the center of this letter. And what I told you going into it is that all that angry, strange stuff that Paul is doing in Romans 1 through 4 seems to be his way of protecting what he's saying in Romans 5 through 8. It's not just he believes the things happening in Romans 5 through 8, that we are up against it, but that we have something working for us that's better than what we are up against, and that the love of God is for all of us for all time. Like, it's not just that he believes those things or teaches those things, but he thinks the church is a place where those things are alive. That communities of people are being birthed throughout the world where these things are becoming real in our midst. That not only do we name the truth of the death that we are up against, but that we celebrate the power of the Spirit at work in our midst, and that we discover in flesh and blood in our life together, it's not just theoretical or analytical, that in our experience together, we are discovering the love of God that cannot be put to rest. It's happening in our midst. So he sees that happening in these communities that are being birthed all over the ancient world, and then he senses that there's a threat to that. There's something going on in this church at Rome, and you might ask if it's happening today in the world, if it's the kind of threat that still persists, if it's the thing that could get in the way of that beautiful revolutionary project. And what I said back in the fall was that in Romans 1 through 4, he's basically like tackling that threat. And today, on the first Sunday of Lent, in a way that I hope you will find kind of fitting as I try to work this out with you, I want to go back to the threat that he sees in those first few chapters of Romans and I want to make a case for what I think he's doing because of what's happening there and the fact that it might be very relevant for us today. So that's, um, that's where we're going today. You guys ready for Romans again? Should we get back into it? You guys are wonderful. All right, let me remind you, um, uh, I'm going to show you Romans 1.18. This is just 18 verses into the letter. I showed you this back in the fall. This is where Paul starts getting kind of grumpy, right? Right after he says, to those who are loved by God, then he says this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Yeah, right? Again, it's pretty nasty. Um, and you might be like, what is he talking about? Or who is he talking about? Like, is he just like complaining about things at large? Is there something specific that he's going after? Let me go a little further here. One chapter, chapter 1, verse 22. He goes a little further in his description of what he's uh, uh, concerned about. Although they claimed to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Hang with that again. Let me read that again. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, that's kind of strange, right? A little backdrop. Again, this is some reminder if you were here before. In the church in Rome, as was the case in basically all the original churches, uh, you begin with what was a Jewish movement because Jesus was Jewish and his friends were Jewish. And so the story begins as a Jewish movement. And then over time, there's this unexpected, powerful, radical evolution of that movement where Gentiles are brought in and they're not expected to stop being Gentiles to be a part of it. 
They don't have to change their identity to be a part of this thing. They're included in spite of the fact that they're not Jewish, right? Well, you get this kind of um, two-faction identity in the church, which is really complicated. You got like two groups coming together, right? Uh, they have very different moral sensibilities. They have very different senses of conscience. Things that offend one group are fine for the other group. Things that seem uh, really strict and unfair for one group seem completely appropriate and holy for the other group. And so from the very beginning, the church is working out how do we belong to each other across these lines of impossible difference. And then the church in Rome seems to have gone through something very peculiar, which is that in the decades before this letter is written, an emperor casts out all of the Jews from Rome. They're evicted for a season. So a church in Rome that was Jew and Gentile is now just Gentile because the Jews have been kicked out of Rome. The Gentiles run the place for a while. And then after the emperor who issued the edict dies, all those Jews come back in. And so you've got the Jewish Christians who were running the house because it was their thing first, right? They're kicked out. The Gentiles run the place for a while. The Jewish Christians come back. Now they've got a whole new set of conundrums, a whole new set of challenges about how to make this thing work. You got power dynamics at play. You got preferences at play. This is kind of a classic human conundrum when you got factions in the community that have different backgrounds and want different things, right? So that's like the, possibly the, the premise or the reason that Paul's got to write this letter to Rome in a historical sense. Now he just talked about this strange thing about people exchanging the image of the immortal God for mortal things, created things. There's a word for what he's describing there. I'm actually curious. Anybody, anybody have a thought of what that might be? It's an old, like, Bible word. It's a word for a thing that the Jewish people are absolutely never, ever supposed to do. The word is idolatry. Idolatry is a word for when you create sort of images of created things and think of them as the creator. And for these Jewish people, like, idolatry is like the worst possible sin. Like, you just can't do it. It's the thing that threatens everything else in their story. When everything, things go wrong for the Jewish people in the Old Testament stories, it's often the case that idolatry is at the center of things going wrong. And here Paul's invoking that, which might suggest that he's speaking specifically at the first part of this letter to one faction. So like when the Gentiles hear a story about exchanging the image of the immortal God for images of created things, that's not going to ring the same bells for them as it's going to ring for the Jewish Christians. He's speaking very specifically to a Jewish sensibility when he raises all of that. Um, so like, hold on to that, okay? We're kind of building a construction here. Uh, then he goes on to a text um, that's pretty complicated. I'm going to share it with you, and then we're going to talk about it for a minute, especially in light of um, how SBCC has addressed this issue. You might know this is in Romans. Maybe you don't. He then says this, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Again, that's classic idolatry speak. When you worship created things rather than the creator, that's idolatry 101. Uh, they served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Now, um, I want to be uh, really thoughtful here for a moment. First of all, because I know there are people in the room for whom these verses have been used in really um, harmful and abusive ways. Also, if you've been here for a while, uh, you know that SBCC is a community that includes our LGBTQ brothers and sisters all the way up. And then this text is here in Romans. Now, 
back in 2018, I spent like 80 minutes up here working through texts like that. We did a lot of Greek and Hebrew work. Um, we negotiated these texts as carefully as possible. I don't actually have time to do that today. But if you're here and you know our community, you know that um, we have a read on this that we sort of like adapted. Um, you can go back and listen to that long sermon if you want to understand how we got there. There are a lot of questions you can ask about these texts, like what exactly is Paul thinking of? It seems very clear that in Paul's time and day, that, uh, that the kinds of um, sexual relations he's describing were quite common in temple practices to pagan gods, especially when there were uh, younger people involved in these things with older people. I mean, there's a lot of like, historical reconstruction that you can work out to figure out, is Paul even have in mind the kind of like modern relationships that we're talking about? And again, I don't have time to work all that out for you today. Here's one thing I will tell you with absolute conviction. Paul did not write Romans 1 because he was concerned about same-sex marriage. That's not what he's doing here. He's invoking this to do something else. He's on his way to another point, and he's, he's, he's kind of leveraging this argument on his way to another point. And that's an argument that I will not offer with nuance because there isn't nuance to it. You can't make a case that Romans 1 was written because Paul is concerned about that. He's concerned about something else, which is why Romans 1 is part of a much larger argument that Paul stretches out over three chapters, which is part of what makes Paul so complicated because ancient rhetoric works different than Twitter. It's just different. Ancient rhetoric stretches itself out over paragraph after paragraph, stacks layer after layer to do Something And like I said back in the fall, the point of reading Romans is not to just ask what's Paul saying, but what's he doing? Because you might say, well, Paul's saying that these kinds of relationships are not approved by God. And I would say the, the bigger question is, what is Paul doing? And I want to keep pushing into what Paul is doing. So that's all the time I have for that today. I'm sorry. Go back and listen to t- uh, August 2018 if you want to hear uh, the, the rest of the working out on that. Let me go further into what Paul uh, does, 129 through 32. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Again, Paul's having a bad day, it seems, right? Uh, This is what's technically called in uh, ancient literature a descent into chaos or to things devolving. This is a common move in ancient literature that you kind of like paint this worse and worse picture to say things are totally falling apart. And Paul does all that, right? Now, what's Paul doing is the question here. That's the only interesting question, I would argue. I don't think it's uh, most important what Paul's saying. I don't even think it's most important what does Paul believe. Because this text is written to do something. That's why he sent it. He put this thing in the mail to them because he hoped this letter would do something in their community. And the question is, what's he doing? Well, from 118 to like 132, everything you've just heard here, one thing that's very clear is knowing he's got two audiences in that room, right? And there's a conflict possibly uh, evolving between these two audiences, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. This entire stretch in Romans 1 seems to be like riling up the moral indignation of one of those audiences. Can you sense that? Imagine... Oh, do I want to do this? Uh, imagine I was in a room full of Republicans and Democrats. (laughs) 
I was going to dramatize it further. I won't. I'll just, I'll just say this. You can imagine if I wanted to rile up the Republicans about how evil the Democrats are. Don't say it, but there are things I could say, right? And if I wanted to rile up the Democrats about how evil the Republicans are, there are things I could say, right? They did this. They believe that. They say these, these things. And be very clear who I was riling up against whom, right? Well, everything Paul's doing in Romans 1 speaks very concretely and specifically to the moral sensitivities and convictions of the Jewish part of his audience. And so he's got them all riled up. Now, why would he do that? Why would he get them all stirred up? I'll tell you why. So he can turn it against them. It's like he's drawing out all of that anger and rage just so he can put a mirror in front of them and say, but what about you? Here's my proof. Next verse, chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge one another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You see how he uses that? I'm going to draw out all of your indignation against them and, like, flip it back on you and say, you've got a problem, too. This is actually, this is kind of like a baller move in Paul's part, I think. This is, like, this is like some sophisticated rhetoric that he's using here to actually do something in the room. And just to make my case further, that now he's turned and speaking directly to that Jewish audience. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're so great, in other words, right? If you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Yeah, right? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Woo! Yes, yeah, amen. Yeah, this is spicy stuff, right? Paul riles up all that indignation just so he can turn it against them. And then he makes this famous move in chapter 3 that you might have heard before. This is one of the greatest hits from Romans. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Another way of saying that, um, this comes from a particular commentator, for both have sinned. Like that sentence often gets extracted into kind of a universal theology, but don't forget the context here. He's speaking specifically about, I got two camps, two factions in my, in my church I got to deal with, and both of you have sinned. And any of you who thinks that you're sort of like standing on superior ground over and against the other people in your community, and I mean other with a capital O, those others, right? Anybody who thinks you're better than them, uh, I got news for you. We are all on the same common ground in need of mercy. And this is what Paul has to do in Romans 1 through 3 to protect that good news of the spirit of God that has been raised up in life in us, of that love that cannot be extinguished. This is what Paul has to do to protect all of that good news in the community. It's as if Paul knows that our eternal enduring capacity to project all of our crap on another camp is the thing that threatens the good work that God wants to do in our midst. Does that seem relevant? 
in the year 2024. He, he knows this, that uh, we have this capacity to do that. Now, we can turn toward um, different um, avenues of psychology and depth theory about the human psyche, and we can learn a lot about this. One way of saying this is that every one of us is a walking contradiction, but we can't bear it. Every one of us is light and dark. Every one of us is sinner and saint. Every one of us has shadow side stuff that we are running from. And the easiest way to avoid your shadows is to put them on somebody else or some other group. We can talk about Rene Girard's scapegoating theory. We can talk about like pyrotheology and radical theology. Like, there's all these different streams, but they all point at the same basic thing, uh, which is that we are walking contradictions and we do everything we can to avoid that truth. So we do it on individual levels. You know how that thing that bothers you like crazy in somebody else is probably the thing you're dealing with, right? We do it on collective levels. We do it with groups. And Paul seems to think this is actually the kind of thing that could wreck the project that the gospel is trying to put to work in the world out, out here. There are even some scholars. Um, it's not the majority stream, but there are some very credible and serious thinkers who say this is the fundamental and revolutionary genius of Christianity. That it, that they say that it, it's the one place in human history where a contradiction is held together and named holy. And for them, do you know where the contradiction ultimately is expressed? In Christ. And the man who is God, and he who was no sin, who became sin for us, and God who died, which is an absolute oxymoron. Right? And like this Lent season, we're on our way to Holy Week and Easter, where we will... In an act that should confuse us and confound us, we will remember that God died. And that he be, who, who was no sin or had no sin became sin for us. These, these contradictions that are located at the very center of the Christian story, some of these thinkers say that's the radical revolutionary power of this story. That if, if the contradictions are located at the center of it, right there in Christ on the cross, then you and I can begin to make peace with our contradictions instead of projecting them. We can stop saying that group, those people, they're the problem, and we can start just facing it. Because if I, if I can make an enemy out of you, I can avoid the contradictions in me, right? But if I can begin to hold space for all the contradictions that live in me, that I am, I am loved of God, called to be God's holy one, like this original audience that Paul wrote to, and like all have sinned, and I'm one of them, and I'm in need of all that help. If I can hold space for that, um, we might stop projecting all this anger and hate on other people. Uh, fundamentalism is a, a, an ugly, ugly dynamic that happens in the world. Uh, it's easy to think of fundamentalism, fundamentalism as a place that you land on an ideological spectrum, like, like the things that you think determine whether you're a fundamentalist or not. That's, that's not actually the best definition of fundamentalism. The best is how you hold your belief which means that you can land anywhere on a spectrum from say left to right or conservative to progressive and you can be a fundamentalist. And fundamentalism drives its energy from assuming that the impurities are out there and we're gonna purge them, right? The impurities must be conquered rather than held. And strangely, this Christian story says, no, we, we hold all of this, we hold room for this. Now, um, It might sound like I'm concerned about uh, the really important conversations that are happening around uh, justice in the world right now, because there's plenty that needs protested. 
There's plenty that needs called out. There's plenty of evil that needs condemned. Like that's very, very real. And I'm not saying any of this to soften that work. I'm actually saying it to preserve that work. Because when the true and good and important work of justice and calling out evil, when it gets mixed and mired with all of our petty projections and pathologies, when the reason I'm shouting about injustice that somebody else is committing is because I'm just projecting all of my stuff because I haven't figured out how to hold it, I do damage to the cause of justice. Do you feel that? And we're having a really hard time in the world right now, I think, like sifting and sorting between vengeance and justice, between projecting and pathologizing our own shadows and darkness on the one hand, and on the other hand, actually doing the good and important work of telling the truth about what's broken and wrong in the world right now. And so I would just say, like, for all of us who feel the urgency of naming what's wrong in the world right now, it's even more urgent that we also do this work of holding space for our own contradictions because we are sinners and saints, we are dark and light. And bizarrely and beautifully, this story makes room for all of that. For both have sinned, you and them, and fallen short. And both, you and them, me and you, we all find ourselves calling on the mercy of a gracious God. Here's another simple way of saying this when I talk about justice and all this work. The only way for us to be a community of justice, or as we sometimes call it, peace, is for us to also be a community of grace. A space that holds these contradictions in our lives names them honestly and truthfully and trusts that these contradictions are being worked out by God and God's own work in our lives rather than our denial and our purging and our pretending that they aren't even there. Uh, This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And in what I think was like a really beautiful opportunity for our church, rather than hosting our own Ash Wednesday gathering, uh, we invited one another to show up for a couple of our sister churches right down the block. They're like our literal neighbors, especially once we moved to the Tribune. Uh, Ash Wednesday at St. James Episcopal and at First Presbyterian. And I know that a number of you uh, showed up in those two spaces. Uh, I was over at First Pres uh, for the noon uh, Ash Wednesday gathering. And if you've not been to an Ash Wednesday gathering, you may not know this, but it, it, is, a, it is a litany of penitence. It's a, it's a naming of our mortality and our sin. And there's a long like, written prayer that you work through that does this kind of inventory of all these different ways that we might need to name our failures, to confess our sins. And I was kind of sitting there processing the inventory. And I'll be honest, um, it was kind of too much for me. Because like every little category that it named, I, I became very frustrated with myself. I'm like, if I think for too long about all the ways that I've failed in that category, like I'm never going to get out of here. And I'm not saying this to be like a, like a performative penitent up here. I'm not trying to prove anything. I just honestly was kind of wrestling with this. And then I began asking myself, I genuinely wondered all over again, having been raised my whole life with the language of sin, confession, and repentance, I was asking myself, am I better off for that? Because there, there can be that kind of hitch in your step that religion gives you, right? There can be that kind of like hang your head posture that religion gives you sometimes. And I don't believe in that. I don't believe in hanging your head. So I really wrestled with this for, I, I sat there and, and I was so thankful that somebody else was leading the gathering and I could just participate and have my own thoughts in that moment. And I was really wrestling there. Um, but then I remembered something that I learned a long time ago, which is when a liturgy or a scripture names the contradictions in our lives, there's two ways to receive that. 
One is to say, oh man, it's reminding me that something's profoundly wrong with me. And if I were better, it wouldn't be this way. That's one way to receive that. Another way to say that is it wouldn't be in the scripture. It wouldn't be in the liturgy unless it was expected of us. Right? We wouldn't have inherited prayers from our forebears in the faith that name our contradictions unless they're like, yeah, that, welcome to being human. That is part of what we are dealing with. And so we hold space for it together. We name it together. We wouldn't have a text in Romans that sort of jousts rhetorically, punches back and forth to try to get everybody to the same place of common need. We wouldn't have that there if it wasn't sort of a built into the human experience. And so you can either see these liturgies as shaming you or, or um, like welcoming all of you, you know, holding space for the contradictions that we are being taught we don't have to run from or ignore, but that in fact are held in God in a kind of gracious way. And maybe all of the growing that we want and all of the healing that we want doesn't come from pretending that the shadows aren't there but rather finding um, a strange way of making peace with them. And somehow in that reconciliation, they lose some of their power. Uh, and then, as a community that holds space for our own contradictions and resists the urge to project everything on everyone else, maybe over time we will discover that we too are a people where death is being put to rest and where the spirit of life is being raised up, like something beyond us is growing up through us. And the love that will not end, that always endures, is being known in our midst, doing a kind of radical, reconciling work for us, like right here. Like, I, I want that for us. I think you want that too. And maybe part of how we get there is we trust Paul's insight. And we say we have to be people who hold our contradictions instead of pretending that they're not there. And so uh, this, our first Sunday of Lent, uh, we have the gift of naming some of our contradictions and then coming to the table to taste the goodness and mercy of God. Uh, and so in these next few moments, a, a very simple liturgy. Uh, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession. Uh, this comes from our Anglican brothers and sisters. Uh, it's an old prayer that's been prayed many, many times by many people. And uh, if you'd like to join me in it, we can speak this prayer out loud together. Uh, when this prayer is done, um, Mariah's got a moment of reflection for us in a song and uh, you're free to like just let that song um, do its work on you, or you're free to sing along. Uh, when that song is done, then I'll come back up and we'll turn our attention to the table. Uh, but you can remain seated as we do this, but if you'd like, uh, let's pray this prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name.
our servers to join me on stage and as they do I want to remind you of what we've said already that at the center of our faith is a strange contradiction that he who had no sin became sin for us that God bore a death for us and if it's true that those things are held together at the center of our faith then perhaps all of you can be held together at this table the light and the shadow 
things that you're ashamed of and the things that you hold your head high for. Maybe all of that can be held together here. And in that holding, some kind of healing can happen as we receive the mercy and grace and kindness of God at this table. Let me remind you that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And later at that same meal, he took a cup. And he said, this is the cup of a new promise. This is the cup of that love that Paul speaks of that cannot run out, that will always endure. Take and drink deeply of this love. And so, loving God, I pray that these elements would be for us, your body and blood, your life given for us and for the world. May we have the bravery to bring all of ourselves to this table, both light and shadow, and find that all of it is held in your mercy. From this holding and healing, may we move forward in love for the world. May this meal sustain us in the good and difficult work of justice, coming from a deep place of wholeness and love in us. We pray these things through Christ. And we all said, Amen. Amen. The body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. And so for those of you listening right now, whether you're local or long distance, I hope today that you know and you hear that this is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. you stand as we sing that chorus together a couple times. you glad we waited till Lent for the next part of Romans? <laughs> uh, may you know that all of your contradictions are held in the love of God. That every shadowy corner of your life is known and seen, and yet God has not rejected you or me. 
And so we find our entire lives held and therefore we move together toward others with love, knowing that that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. And we look forward to the ever-growing possibility of a gospel community, of a good news church that experiences these things together. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.